Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, housing. It's an often overlooked issue, probably because it rarely generates a lot of political heat. There's an entire cabinet agency devoted to it, but you rarely see it in the headlines. We had an entire world financial meltdown that was nominally about it, except that it was really about Wall Street, and we never really talked about housing much at all. Back when I was a congressional staffer, the staff who worked in the Washington office were all assigned issues to cover that were in their area of expertise. No one ever wanted to cover housing, and I remember some open negotiations about who would get stuck with it. And yet, like the rug in the Big Lebowski that ties the whole room together, possible to argue that this unassuming and under-the-radar issue is actually the linchpin. It's a key driver in policy in other areas that we think a lot more about. The lack of affordable housing drives suburban and exurban development, transportation, pollution, climate issues, and healthcare. It's the core of the so-called middle-class squeeze in which the real incomes of Americans have been flat for more than two decades, while all the costs of living have gone ever upwards. If there's one place in America that we can see all of these issues playing out in real time, it's California. Our guest today has been on the forefront of trying to figure out the housing affordability problem on the ground in California, and he's here to tell us what's going on, why California is a bellwether for issues that the whole country is facing or will soon be facing, and what innovative solutions he and other advocates have devised to address the problem. Sibley Simon, welcome to Great Ideas. Well, I am delighted to have you. Sibley and I, for all of our listeners, actually go way back. We, we go back a long ways. But look, I'm not just having him, I'm not just having you, Sibley, on the show, because we go back a long ways. Often on this show, we feature experts out of Washington, D.C. That makes sense, because we're usually talking about national and international problems. But the reason I so wanted to have you in particular on this show is that you prevent, uh, present a different, and I think very fresh and important perspective what I learned, the, the key lesson I learned from my mentor in grad school, who was a foreign policy muckety-muck in the Bush administration, is that you really have to play out the movie of how policy is going to work. He gave us this example from the Rwandan genocide, where he said, well, what would all of you smart policy folks do in this situation? Oh, well, we'd send in troops. And he said, well, what would they do? Would they knock on doors? Would they confiscate weapons? What about farm implements? Would they confiscate those? How are they going to walk around all the villages in a country the size of New Jersey? And we began to see that the on-the-ground reality of policy devised at 30,000 feet in Washington is very, very different. And that's, I think, one of the hallmarks of what happens with housing policy. Not to mention, just for all of our listeners, you're not a housing policy guy by background. You're actually a serial entrepreneur. Actually, Entrepreneur is the best word that can follow the word serial in that sentence. You're a serial entrepreneur. You've come up with tech solutions for big problems. And so you bring kind of this innovation mindset. So, all right, before we drill down into your experience and this kind of on-the-ground nature of what you're doing, let's, let's start at that higher level. Could you just tell our listeners, why does housing matter so much? I alluded in the open a moment ago to the idea that this is a linchpin issue, which is something you suggested to me a few weeks ago. But why should listeners be paying attention to an issue that 
most Americans don't seem to get too riled up about and that we don't hear about as often in the national public discourse. Sure. I think something you're doing is looking back, and I'm going to argue that housing affordability is a frog boiling in the pot issue. You know, we were talking about climate change, right, in the early 90s, and when you and I were in college together in the mid-90s, but it was this like, oh, 20, 30, 40 years from now, it's going to be a huge problem, so why don't we try to do something? Yeah, right. Housing, it's not exactly the same. Housing affordability has been a huge issue for some people in our country forever, but it becoming a, a defining issue that really completely affects where most people can live, what jobs they can have, lowers upward mobility, and becomes the linchpin issue in climate change and other issues. That's starting to happen. So we're turning a corner in the wrong direction, much as we are with climate change. Now we're talking about fires today, right? And stronger hurricanes today, not the distant future. And we're seeing that spread out across the country with housing as well. It's not just California, of course, uh, but it's pockets uh, of the country. So uh, I think it's really important to say that you can say housing affordability and people understand, okay, so people can't afford housing, right? Or they might be literally homeless, can't afford any housing, but but really it's it's broadly people spending more and more of their income on housing. And the definition of affordable housing is people spending 30, no more than 30% of their gross income on housing, whether they're buying a house or renting, but increasingly more and more households spending more than 50%. And you can imagine if before taxes, you know, 50% of your before tax income is going to housing, you don't have a lot left, you know, you're paying taxes on that part, you know, and in addition to the other part, you don't, you're not, and that's where healthcare outcomes start going down. People can't go to, go to school if they want to, you know, et cetera. Exactly. And and so I say, you know, a state near you, Maine, has been starting to tackle housing affordability, putting more public dollars into affordable housing than ever before, starting to take away some local control of housing decisions. Well, they're doing that because statewide, 20 percent of the households in Maine are spending half of their gross income on housing. Well, in a region I live in, in California, that's the population of the majority of households are spending over half their income on housing. And so you can see being that much worse and what happens and what happens here is that everyone talks about housing. It's not like you're describing Washington, D.C. It's the number one issue. It's the issue that's the most bills in the state legislature. Thirty one bills were signed by the governor last month that were all housing bills. So I just the last thing I'll say here is is defining the problem, which is I say it's critical to when if you look at solutions, you have to understand there's three separate problems. So one of those is there's not enough housing. So in California, it, to have the same amount of housing per capita that the rest of the United States has today, despite not enough housing in the whole country, California would need about two and a half million more homes than it currently has. Wow. So we just don't have enough housing for the people who live here today. So of course it gets bid up, you know, it's an auction for housing. And there's a lot of, you know, people playing musical chairs, crowding, you know, having overcrowding. So that's just not enough housing. Then the second problem is a social safety net problem. And this is the one that's always existed uh, in this country. And is we don't have a good safety net. And so everywhere in the country, rural, urban, every single state, there are individuals and households that can't afford any safe legal housing today. So that's homelessness or it's incredible overcrowding or it's extremely unsafe conditions, you know, et cetera. And that needs to be solved in, in different ways than, than the supply problem. And the third really big problem is racial discrimination. It's been a major form of racial discrimination forever in our country. 
And while we have outlawed you know, some forms of housing discrimination, the systems keep it in place. We're, we're, we're the most segregated of the world's rich democracies by race in our communities. And still today, you know, your race has an effect on mortgage rates on average that you get all else being equal on where you can. So therefore, where you can buy a home and how you're treated with from real estate agents, you know, et cetera. And just if we leave all these systems in place, we're, we're continuing to mean that the majority of the wealth of racial wealth gap is from different amounts of homeownership and different amounts of appreciation in the homes that people do own. So it really housing is entirely behind that uh, fact that the racial wealth gap is greater today than it was 40 years ago. You know, and black homeownership is lower rates are lower today than they were 40 years ago. Well, I could see from that entire answer that you gave just how and I hope our listeners could pick up just how woven the housing issue is into all these other things that we talk so much about and that are so much more high profile. And I love the way you started out by alluding to the metaphor of the frog in the pot of water where the temperature is slowly rising until the point where it's getting boiled and it doesn't even realize it along the way. It does feel like that's the way we're heading. And California is sort of the skinny edge of the wedge on that. It's, it's, it's leading the curve. So of those three big issues, kind of the supply and demand, the, the, the racial aspect, what, what's the core problem that's, that's driving the issue in California? Why is this the number one issue in the state legislature? Why is this what most people are talking about? There's two reasons that it's worse in California than any other region of that size around the country. I, I like to mix metaphors and say California on this issue is the 800-pound canary in the coal mine. It's the it's that one is we we more than any other state put all the land use decisions at the local level. So it means every little town, suburb, city, and the city councils there and planning commissions. They get to completely historically decide what areas housing is allowed to be built in and how much of the housing. And so that tends to be homeowners having a lot of political power and saying, don't build anything near me. And so we've downzoned, very little zone capacity. There's just not even places you couldn't legally build the housing that we need that I talked about in California. There's nowhere it's allowed legally to be put. So that's one factor is we just outlawed, you know, creating most types of housing in most places. And, and California invented the single family home only zoning, which was a, a racial segregation motivation behind it. And then, you know, that perpetuated out. And so now we're starting to peel that back. That's one reason. And the second reason is on the demand side, California has been really great at creating jobs. And so, for example, in the last decade, the Bay Area created over eight jobs for every unit of new housing it built. So, you know, maybe if we had lost jobs, you know, and not built housing, the equation would be okay. But it's not okay because we've we've been a great economic engine uh, and a terrible housing uh, production site. So back to supply and demand. And again, I, just going back to the point at the top that you introduced to me, you can see how this becomes a driver of sprawl, transportation issues. We're having a debate in this country about an infrastructure bill. What is most of that about? It's about roads and rail. Why do we need so much of that? Some of it is a repair issue, but a lot of it is we have to get people 
to where the jobs are from where they're able to live affordably and those things are far apart. Okay, that makes a ton of sense and I see how these issues where it's like a postcard from the future in California and not a particularly good one and that postcard is being sent out around the country. Now, one thing you raised to me when we were talking about this a few weeks ago is that housing issues don't break along neat ideological lines, especially when it comes to issues like regulation, zoning, which you mentioned as, as one of the, the core problems going on in California, one of the drivers of affordable housing difficulties. So why is that? Why don't we see this kind of ideological split that we see on a lot of other issues? It's very personal, partly because we're not voting nationally or on, on housing. We're talking about one project at a time because we need to build infill now, not just sprawl. And, and we've largely stopped, stopped sprawl. And where we have sprawl in California, it's in very high wildfire risk zones, right? So we need to stop it even more. And that's not where the jobs are either. So we have to build infill. That means you're building near somebody. You're building in somebody's neighborhood. You're building with houses down the road, down the street, and people are worried about parking on their street, traffic. And so, in fact, you know, folks who have an inclination to support more government regulation of things in general, which is associated with the liberal end of the spectrum, right, might say, oh, housing can only be built if it is the perfect housing, if more of it's affordable to low income, if that's something they care about, if it has all the underground parking that the residents will ever need so they won't park in the public street, you know, in front of my house, you know, and, and on and on and on. And so uh, there's there's a small C conservative nature to a lot of people, which is, you know, don't change my life, you know, don't take away, take away or make it have any negative impacts on me. And there's a lot of fear about what change is going to bring. And so it, there's politically powerful folks in every city who feel that change might be negative. And that has nothing to do with who they're voting for for president. Right. And not all of that has to be. It's an interesting change that I've seen. I did a great show a month or two back with Chris Sprigman, who's a law professor. We were talking about NIMBYism, and I introduced him. NIMBY, not in my backyard, is an old concept, and it's sort of endemic. It's a, it's a building issue. But what we've seen in the last 10 years is a growth of a new kind of faction, bananas, which stands for build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. And it just seems to be a cultural shift that cuts across these kinds of class or ideological lines where there's just this gut level reaction of, I don't want any of it. I don't like change. It's scary. I like what I have. And yet in the background, we're creating all these jobs in certain places and nowhere to put all the people who want to work at those jobs. So I think, I think, but I want to test this with you, that that's one of the reasons why Housing is the issue, as I kind of previewed at the top of the show, where it's so hard to devise top-down solutions kind of embedded in Washington, and you have to play the movie, as my grad school advisor said. You have to think about it on the ground, because there's so many devils lying in so many details at the ground level. And we've seen this play out recently in the rental aid that Congress tried to provide to prevent an eviction wave during the pandemic. It recently came to light that less than 17% of that federal rental aid has actually been dispersed by state and local officials. Why? Because the specifics of dealing with local city or state housing programs, local landlords, all of these regulations are so tangled at the ground level. So 
Is that what's going on here? Is housing an issue where this is especially true that it's it's hard to work on from the 30,000 foot level? In general, it is. But as with when you're trying to get quick public assistance out in the face of a pandemic and massive job loss, well, you got it turns out it's way more efficient just to send everybody some money. Right. And we keep learning that lesson over and over again. And if you have a whole book of all the requirements and paperwork people need, you know, it's impossible. So for people to get get the help. So this but there's clever ways to do it. Uh, California has hit upon some of those in all this bills. It's passing year after year now on housing. So, for example, just one example, there's a big process going on right now in California where the state is saying to every region and there's regional government coordinating bodies and stuff, saying every region, OK, we've done this calculation of overcrowding and demand and job growth and stuff, and we're assigning you this many housing units that you have to plan for locally and at different income levels, very low income housing, low income, moderate income, above moderate income. We here's your assignment. Now, you regional body carve that up to each city in that region, jurisdiction. And now you local jurisdiction, you get to decide, are you going to allow taller buildings downtown with mixed use? Are you going to allow even easier to build backyard units? And so the local you know, sausage making gets to happen with people on the ground knowing their neighborhoods. But the state, and if you don't do it, there's some sticks. You don't get your infrastructure funding, or you, or we're gonna fine you, or you know, or a judge can come in and do zoning. So you just, you just gotta meet the numbers feasibly. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I kind of like this idea, and I do think a lot of programs. I mean, look, talking about not breaking along standard ideological lines is interesting because Democrats, liberals, tend to be the ones who worry about housing. What's the cabinet agency called? Housing and urban development. Democrats are the ones that tend to care about those issues. And yet, one of the things that you're suggesting, and you're not like an overtly conservative guy, is, you know, maybe the more Republican conservative approach of what sounds an awful lot like block granting to states, it's actually not such a bad idea, maintaining that local control, the local expertise. And one of the things we found, kind of counterintuitively in the last year, is that the state that's been most successful in getting that rental assistance aid out to prevent evictions is Texas, Texas of all states. And it's because they've kind of undergone this process of kind of hand-to-hand local combat, working with local boards, cities, landlords, and tr- trying to kind of cut through some of the red tape, but also leaving in a fair amount of local control and just, you know, cutting the check. It's it's like Rashid Wallace used to say, just cut the check. Okay, given that we now kind of understand some of these variables, some of that background high-level information about what the problem is, I'd like to dive into some of your on-the-ground expertise and some of the innovation that you've been bringing to bear to try to get a handle on this. So first of all, tell me about the organization you run. What is it you aim to do And why did you think a a new organization was necessary to tackle affordable housing in your area in California? So I briefly mentioned before ways in which housing is becoming more legal to build, right? The policy work is tackling some of those policy barriers. But when you remove some of those barriers and allow well-designed infill housing uh, to be built, you still have to build it. And we've calcified here in California because you couldn't build most most of the housing that's needed. We build housing in two ways. 
development models. Development means planning and designing the housing, but it also just means paying for it. So how's the housing paid for? Well, on the one hand, there's public dollars that go to building 100% affordable housing for lower income households. Okay, great, really needed. We do a much better job than in decades past. It's great quality housing, well-planned. We try more and more to put it in high opportunity neighborhoods, et cetera. So that's great, but in California, we would have to build 200,000 units of housing a year just to keep up with increasing demand and job creation, et cetera, in a typical year. We create less than half of that. So we're digging the deficit that I talked about every year where there's not enough housing. We build about 20,000 units a year with public funding. So that's about 10% of that break-even amount we do with public funding. So that's great, but it's a little more than a drop in the bucket, but it's a few drops. And we're putting more money into that, and it's federal tax credits, state money, local little tax uh, taxes, et cetera, fine. And we need to, need to do more of that. But it's not gonna, that's not going to build uh, housing for school teachers, and it's not even going to build housing for all of the very low-income working households. Secondly, there's high return investment. You know, you can think of it as quote unquote Wall Street investment, but it's, you know, it's just investors out there who are taking risks and getting and seeking a high return because they see it as very risky, usually one project at a time, whether one suburban development or one tower downtown. That is one project. And they say a lot of things could go wrong with that project. It could cost way more, whatever. So they want a plan that gets them 20% return. And, and half the, most of the time, they'll get a bunch less than that, but it's got to be that. And so, that kind of, if you're going to seek that high return, you got to build the high-end condos. You got to build uh, the McMansions, or you know, you got to build to the high end of the market. So in California, that's 60 or 80,000 units of housing a year get built that way. Neither of these models were so far behind in housing, and for housing for middle class and lower income working households and retirees on fixed incomes that have worked their whole careers in a community, we're so behind on that. Neither of these models is going to fill most of that gap. So it's a long answer, but you have to understand that context. And so I said, even now, if it's becoming legal to build the housing we need, we need a way to pay for it, bottom line. And so I believe there's tremendous amount. And to put a number on it, I mean, we're talking like a couple trillion dollars to build the housing that's missing just in California. Just Just in California. (laughs) And and by the way, if in the last decade, the nation had everywhere that that needs more housing had built all the housing that there was demand for in the last decade there'd be 7.3 million more homes in the country so a little less than half of that is the missing housing in california but there's a lot of other cities that have been creating jobs and not housing so so it's a huge problem now you can borrow a bunch of that you know and then sell the house and pay back the construction loan you can uh, or pay it off at a rent okay that's fine but you still need investment dollars so there, but there are trillions of investment uh, dollars out there looking for ways to do good in the world. You know, impact investment where the, where investors want to return financial return, but but also want to be doing something positive and not negative. And then furthermore, there's even more capital that just wants low ri- low risk, solid, dependable returns. And I think both of those things can be provided in housing. So the number one idea for what we're doing, my organization is called New Way Homes. It's a nonprofit, but in a, in a twist of things, it's a nonprofit, but it runs an investment fund. And it's a nonprofit to lock in the mission, make sure the mission is first, and to say, look, this is a un, for now, this is the under market uh, return on your investment. But it, the number one idea is to say investors get a fixed return. So most investors in New Way Homes Fund get a four and a quarter percent return. They have to put their money in long term, they get that interest back every year. 
What that means is we're not when we're designing a building housing, we're not making any decisions based on maximizing profit. You could do this as a for-profit model that's lower profit and be like a, the car companies that create, you know, the Honda Civic as opposed to the Porsche. You know, we uh, we're not doing that with housing for the most part in this country where it's low margin, you know, high volume. But here, what I'm doing is making it a step more charitable and saying, look, we're going to get investors back their money. But we're not going to make decisions based on profit beyond getting them that that return that we've promised. And then we spread the risk off across housing projects. So that's the number one linchpin. And then suddenly it's like, oh, we don't have to chase the top of the market. We can make anywhere that can make financial sense and provide that return. We can build housing. And so we can build mixed income housing that has some housing in every project we do has very low income household housing. Um, and low income housing has and moderate income housing and occasionally some market rate units to help pay for the whole thing. So that's the number one thing. And that's just what I set out to do and to create some permanent supportive housing for folks who have been homeless and, and find ways to pay back the money for that, which we're doing. Uh, so we have some specialized projects for that, but a lot of just mixed income apartment buildings. Then, uh, secondly, what we found out is you can make the housing more affordable, the rent's lower, you know, et cetera, if you don't have to pay for the land. How do you find land you don't have to pay for? Well, uh, there's a ton of nonprofit owned land in the hearts of our towns and cities. And it can be social service nonprofit, but uh, there's a whole huge category, which is churches and other religious institutions. And as they're seeing their members, you know, older members who are seniors and, and younger families moving out because of housing costs, they're very concerned about that as they're doing charitable works for folks who are homeless and seeing more and more homeless uh, folks in California. They're very concerned about that. And all and all the other issues lead back to housing, as you said. So, in fact, we're we're getting overwhelmed with churches calling us who want to build housing on their land. And the the maximized profit developers aren't a fit. And usually their sites are not a fit for public dollars either, just because you have to have at least 50 units or building for the for the public subsidies. So we're fine. You know, we're just literally every day getting inquiries from that. So that's very interesting. And then the third, you remember, we talked about racial equity being incredibly important and, and a, a real problem with housing. And anytime you're going to do big change, which suddenly like, you know, I'm for like tripling the amount of housing that's being built in there in California. Well, if we don't think about racial equity. A lot of times we do things for reasons we think are good, and then disproportionately the negative impacts of that change are on lower income households and particularly people of color. When we thought freeways were the most important thing we could do in our country, we built them through low income and especially neighborhoods of color, right? And it was an absolute disaster from a racial equity point of view. So even if it's incredibly important and good to build affordable housing, uh, we got to not just concentrate poverty in low-income neighborhoods, not displace people of color living in neighborhoods. So those are important considerations. And as it turned out, the, the, the majority of religious institutions calling us to build housing on their land are traditionally black and brown churches. And so here they are. And so we've devised a model where they get a lot of control of the housing. It builds uh, their balance sheet and income to that institution that's doing incredible charitable work in their community, not just for their church members, and is designed to try to reduce displacement of people of color from the urban and suburban areas where, they're, where they have been living for a long time. So we found ways. And again, the churches are one niche. You know, there's a lot of other, we're, we've been getting into the topics of cleaning up environmentally contaminated sites in lower income neighborhoods and then building affordable housing there because there's a zillion parcels that used to be gas stations and, and, and car washes and 
auto repair and dry cleaners, and they're all sitting there with contaminated soil. So it's another thing. You know, so there's a lot of these opportunities, but you have to think about how you're increasing housing supply, how you're building housing for all income levels, and how you're improving, not worsening, racial equity. And that's with, with the New Way Homes Fund, we're finding all these opportunities to do that. And as we're finishing projects now and completing them and people are moving in, we're trying to publicize more of what we're doing because, you know, we're not going to fill this gap. We need there to be a thousand people like us figuring out variations on new models for housing development to meet this need. Well, the premise of this show is to present people with innovative ideas, new ideas, great ideas about what's going on out there to fix some of the problems we face. I urge our listeners, there was a lot of intelligent, innovative, new ideas packed into the last, I don't know, six or seven minutes there from Sibley Simon. I urge our listeners to go back. That's one of the great things about podcasts. You can hit the rewind button. If you're listening on radio, you got to find us on podcast. Then you can listen again and hit the rewind button because Sibley, you just packed a lot of innovation and new ideas. And the point I liked best was your last one, which is, you know, you're trying some things out here to fill a gap that you know you've identified here you're you're getting about halfway there with what's being built what i was hearing from you is you need 200,000 new homes housing units a year to just keep keep up with growth just to keep from falling behind you're getting about 20,000 from public you're getting 60 to 80 from developers going after the high end and there's a massive chasm of about 100,000 that's for the rest of us for middle-income folks, for working-income folks. And you're filling it with an innovative financial model by finding innovative niches and partners to work with so that you can make it even more affordable. And you're along the way, by the way, addressing some of the racial equity issues, which were one of the key drivers that you mentioned at the top of the show. And by the way, just a quick plug, financially, this can work. There is a there is a market out there for investment vehicles that are not ultra high return. The, I mean, utilities, electric utilities are a prime example of a stock that doesn't offer a high return, but it's very reliable. It's kind of a mom and pop stock that operates more like a bond. People like investments that maybe aren't super high on return, but are lower on risk and are very reliable. And that's another kind of innovative tie-in that, you know, it's a product that the market could actually be looking for. Okay, that was a lot. That was a lot. Even, even for me, listening with rapt attention to everything you were saying, I'm wondering if you can maybe take us through, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show that fundamental lesson I learned about play the movie. Play the movie. How does this play out? So if you were going to play the movie, what is the experience like trying to create a new development or induce some new affordable housing using your model? Are, are there kind of examples or illustrative stories that you can share that let our listeners know what this is like? Yeah, absolutely. So we had one of the first churches, this black church in East Oakland that, that we ran into a couple years ago with Bishop George Matthews. It's called Genesis Worship Center. And he actually was so, this is unique. He was so interested and passionate about the need for housing that he had actually on his own gotten entitled, meaning gotten planning permits to build, to renovate a part of, the, of a wing of the church into four apartments, uh, but then ran into the stumbling block of how do you pay for it? 
and he had tried to get uh, public dollars. It's a small project. He'd had somebody do that, but then he ran into all these thorny issues. You couldn't divide the the parcel and have these units on one a separate parcel from the church. So a bunch of public mechanisms didn't work that way. And he was his permits were going to expire, you know, and and so ran into us and. So we worked with them. Usually we're starting from scratch, but said, oh, yeah, you've done a lot of thinking here and and worked with the city of Oakland. I'm permitting some things. So let's get in. And we got in and we ended up redesigning in collaboration with him and came up with a 12 unit project inside their building. And so that's great. We got that re-permitted. Then we found lenders who were willing to lend to the church and lenders who could understand church finances and things like that. And we were able to get construction loan, get the building permits. There's one problem we often run into in working with churches, which is that they're by every city required to have a lot of parking. And they only fill that parking up on Easter Sunday <laughs> and these days. But they're also typically not allowed to use any of that parking for some other use. Because in theory, if every pew is full and the choir's in front, all that parking is might be full of cars. And then where would the residents park, right? And so we actually drafted and worked with the um, uh, state legislator, Buffy Wicks, and got a bill passed last year during the pandemic in California that was just about church parking and housing. So if churches want to build housing and some of it's affordable housing for lower income, then the church can decide how to share its parking between its use and the housing use. And every pastor knows how much parking they need and they do not want complaints from their you know older attendees who can't find parking. So they... They know how to do this. So we, we were able to get that. So sometimes there's this little barrier and you got to go to the city or the state and, and get that reduced. And then so then we found the financing. We, we got under construction and now we've completed the housing, you know, a year and a half of uh, really thorough renovations to convert the use uh, of this old kind of school wing of this church into 12 units of housing. And now that particular pastor had a passion for reentry housing, folks coming out of prison and needing services to transition successfully and not become homeless or, or have recidivism. And got a, he got a five-year contract from the county to run this housing and provide services. And today, there's folks uh, living in there who are in transition between a prison and successfully getting jobs and, and being successful. So, so that's, that's that housing. And now, you know, because that's completed, people are in there successful and it's really nice. You know, we did a great job on design and construction and fixed up a few things in the church along. The, and then we're getting calls off the hook. And uh, so there's a, down the street, there's a larger church and we're going to do 28 units of housing in a, in a vacant school building that they have. And now we have that permitted and, and we're moving along and that's going to be low income family housing. Yeah. And so I just went to a neighborhood meeting this weekend. It's the best neighborhood meeting about our housing work I've ever been to, which was in this neighborhood where we now have five projects in this one neighborhood. And instead of it being the usual, usual complaints of we get more housing, there's going to be more traffic and we're not going to have a place to park. And, and, and we hate tall buildings. You know, this neighborhood, and yes, it's a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And these were homeowners we were meeting with. That live, many, most of them, some of them grew up there. You know, some of them live there for decades and own homes. And they said, we've been trying to get the city to fix the streets, to deal with this problematic liquor store down the street, to X, Y, Z for decades. And occasionally we get some little movement, but we can't get the attention and the infrastructure is crumbling and stuff. And, you know, let's work together. And, you know, yes, they don't want 
the whole neighborhood to be all very low-income housing. They want folks with disposable income so that there can be active commercial on the street and low-income housing so people aren't displaced, you know. And so we had a great conversation about what does this neighborhood need? You know, what can we do? How can we work together to get more of that attention and get the city of Oakland to partner with it? So that's the kind of stuff I deal with, you know, every day. And then, then of course, we have things like we have a project that needs a new, the roof is ready to go on the project and we can't get the vents for the roof because of the pandemic delays. They're probably sitting on a boat in the Pacific Ocean somewhere, not getting unloaded, you know. So, you know, these are the kind of things we deal with all the time. But we're building the housing. People are moving in. We pay back the construction loan, you know, and then and then pay investors their return. And so I couldn't be more excited about it. Two things really jump out to me about that story. One is it really does circle back to the point we've been making throughout the show. This is why it's so hard to do this from a 30,000 foot level and where there's some wisdom in, you know, it's what George H.W. Bush called a thousand points of light. It's people working through the local level and trying to figure out how to get the vents shipped and how to figure out what's a mixed use type of development to do on a street in Oakland. It's it's just step-by-step -step work that has to have innovation. It has to have dedication. And it, it, it kind of almost has to be done on the local level. The other thing that jumped out to me, for people who don't know, Buffy Wicks is a pretty big name in Democratic politics. Why don't you tell people who she is? And I, what I'd love is if you could just quickly tell me, because you had mentioned to me that this idea of, of being able to make more use of church property you were able to actually convince conservatives about this. So this is an idea that united a, a famous liberal and a famous conservative to get something done. Yeah, it's so Buffy Wicks is a assemblywoman from the East Bay in the California state legislature. You know, she I think, you know, her probably from her work on the Obama campaign and in the Obama administration, which I know somewhat less about. But it, I she got my attention because we're working in her district in part. And. She has been in the California state legislature really uh, pushing on housing rules. Part of the reason is, you know, 31 bills were signed last month on housing. And, uh, and famously last year, when some of these bills that she was involved in were getting passed uh, a year ago, was on the floor, had to come with her baby and during the pandemic. Uh, newborn baby, you know, to be able to speak because she couldn't get allowed to speak remotely in the state legislature. And that kind of caught on virally, but just absolutely passionate advocate for affordable housing and uh, more housing and solving these housing uh, issues. So it's been a real pleasure uh, to work with her. And she introduced this church parking lot bill last year. And you're right. We caught it wasn't it wasn't a Republican Democrat thing. It's, this was a hey, here's a sensible change to a barrier that, that we can all agree on and and neighborhood institutions that we can trust to make a little bit better um, decision than these rules that weren't really made for the idea that churches might build housing. I, I'm going to I'm going to turn to sort of the lesson that I draw from this. But let me ask you one more question. How, what's it going to take? to sort of export what you've learned here, if this is an inherently local approach, can it be copied? Can it be applied? Or what is it going to take to make a dent in these affordability issues nationally and other places? Yeah, this is one where it's going to take 
new industries being created. You know, it's not it's not starting from scratch. People know how to build houses and apartment buildings, and that's always changing. You know, but changing slowly. So there's there's folks. There's construction industry. There's development industry. There's construction lenders. We got all the pieces. It's really just getting the information out there and getting more people. You know, ins- inspired to work in that industry. So there are. There's a lot of one-off projects, you know, all over the country to build this one building, you know, and that that use a lot of these kinds of ideas. But we're going to have to publicize this, get this word out and get more folks to to build housing with a thought toward affordability, racial equity, you know, and urban infill near jobs. And there's a there there is a lot of work going on toward that. So I'm very optimistic this can grow from this kind of proof point seed stage to to building millions of, of units around the country. And then the policy work is just removing barriers. You know, it is something where because it provides a financial return, you know, that's one thing we do pretty well in our country is is follow those opportunities if the barriers are removed. It's removed. With creating housing, there's different layers of the activity. So one layer is that policy layer, and we just need to make it more legal to be build housing in the appropriate places. But then there's paying for the housing. That's something New Way Homes is trying to do. And that just takes, you know, a few funds like this, and foundations can do it, private funds can do it, New Way Homes will do it, which is if the money is out there saying, hey, there, here's a model that works, we can help pay for it if you will build it this way, then that's another layer. So we don't need there be a million of those, maybe you know dozens of those. And then there are developers who are excited to do this kind of work, but they don't have investors, You know those investors. So if it, it becomes legal and they can get the investors, then there, there is a whole industry out there who will build it. And then, by the way, we actually don't have a big enough construction industry in this country anymore to build up this housing. So we do need, whether it's uh, community colleges and trade schools, you know, and, and to inspire more folks to go into the trades needed to actually build it. Those are the main layers. And I do think they're all scalable. Well, Simply Simon, I really want to thank you for walking us through all this, because, again, the idea here of the show is to prevent, present great ideas, innovative ideas, new ideas. And not only are you doing that, but I think it's awfully easy these days to get kind of downcast about how much of an impasse we seem to be on in, in on so many issues. But I think you're showing that it's possible to move past some of those things. And th- there are compromises, there are new approaches we can take. So thanks so much for bringing this all to us. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. 